0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Season 3 of the History of Medicine. This season is going to be about public health, and this episode about ancient public health. Now, to start, what exactly is public health? That's a good question, which people far smarter than me have already addressed in the past. My personal favorite definition is straight off of Wikipedia, which is quoting an old book. Public health is the science and art of preventing disease. That's pretty broad, because there are a lot of ways to tackle preventing disease. Today, we'll go over some ancient evidence that people, even thousands of years ago, had figured out some of the basics. Let's start with sanitation and housing. Now, it doesn't really sound like a technology, because the idea is probably so natural to us. But someone at some point did have to figure out the idea of plumbing. Imagine, if you will, how much less sanitary your life would be without basic plumbing. Your waste would have to be taken out manually, like the garbage. Washing anything, yourself included, would be much more difficult. These ideas have been around for a while, as far back as 4,000 years ago. Excavations of ancient cities located in modern-day India show evidence of bathrooms and drains in buildings. Their streets were broad, paved, and drained by covered sewers, much like ours today. Some of these pipes were made of pottery and plaster, which must have been a pain to carefully transport to construction sites, but the extra effort was clearly worth it, and beats not having plumbing. The ancient Indians weren't the only ones, ancient Egyptian cities had stone gutters in the center of streets for drainage, and ruins also show remnants of bathrooms. It's not only drains that ancient folks had already figured out, but also providing running drinking water. Ancient ruins at Crete, and what is believed to be Troy, had large water supply systems, in addition to bathrooms and drains too. I think it's pretty incredible that ancient people had some functional plumbing and water systems, with much less technology available. General cleanliness was also practiced by ancient peoples, although not necessarily for the same reasons as us. I might wash my hands and wipe down surfaces because I want to avoid germs, but often in ancient societies, cleanliness was associated with religion and purity in the eyes of the gods. Examples include ancient Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and Hebrews. In ancient Incan feasts before the rainy season, they carried out a health ceremony, which involved prayers, offerings, and thoroughly cleaning every single house. I have plenty of memories as a kid of being told to clean my room, but it was never for the sake of religion. Regardless of the actual cause, though, many ancient people were careful about cleanliness, which I gotta admit is pretty good for thousands of years ago. Now, one part of public health that was really lacking in ancient times was a true understanding of disease. Ancient and medieval doctors were not aware of germs or the complexities of our organs generally. They instead often studied what they could observe, symptoms and the state of certain parts of the body. Many focused erroneously on the grouping of symptoms, and on two major explanations for illness in early times. One was humoralism, a belief that imbalances in body fluids caused illness. The other, solidism, instead focused on the solid parts of the body, and whether they were constricted or relaxed, which is also usually not particularly relevant to disease. Society at large, though, especially in earlier times, mostly considered diseases to be divine punishment, which could be stopped only by appeasing the gods. This religious explanation for disease would persist, well, to this very day, but it has diminished in power as time has gone on, and that first started in Greece, culminating in the 4th and 5th centuries BC, when the first attempts at a scientific understanding of disease began to appear. Since these ancient writers did not have modern understandings of disease, we sometimes have to kind of guess as to what they are talking about. Ancient Greek writers did document epidemics in several places, though, along with collections of symptoms we think correspond to diphtheria and malaria. The understanding of malaria was pretty decent, too, for a few thousand years ago. Malaria is spread by mosquitoes, and while that was too difficult to figure out, writers of the 5th century BC did notice that malaria was worsened by wet spring seasons and proximity to marshes or swamps, all of which encourage mosquitoes. A number of works illustrated this understanding that disease was caused by natural causes, but in particular there was a tome called Airs, Waters, and Places, which is the first known systematic attempt to link environmental factors to diseases. It formed the basic understanding of disease mechanisms that would stand for more than 2,000 years, not to be challenged really until germ theory came along in the 1800s, which has got to be some kind of world record airs, waters, and places recognized two types of diseases, as well as coining terms for them that we still use today. The first is endemic diseases, which are diseases always present in a population. The second was epidemic, which you've definitely heard recently, and refers to diseases that are not always present, but at certain times become very frequent. The book also postulates correctly, although a bit oversimplified, that climate, soil, water, mode of life, and nutrition are the main factors in disease. These theories were also put into practice by the Greeks, who were around this time growing a bit of an empire, making colonies in nearby Italy, Spain, and France, although none of them were yet called those names. Airs, waters, and places was actually intended as a guide to making sure that new colonies will be healthy, advising that local doctors should be questioned about diseases and the local soil should be thoroughly investigated. Marshes and swamps are to be avoided, and houses should be built on higher areas that get lots of sun. This knowledge was also studied by doctors because it was useful in establishing credibility fairly quickly. The profession of physician has changed a great deal in several thousand years, who would have thought, but doctors in this time actually usually traveled from place to place, seeking out patients, a complete reversal of today, sometimes even settling down temporarily if there is a lot of work to be had. As you can imagine, there weren't really medical schools in the modern sense yet, or licensing boards for doctors. So then how were people supposed to tell the fakes from the actual doctors? For a doctor who was new in town, predicting the course of a disease was a fantastic way to prove to your prospective customers that you were not a quack. Now after the Greeks, of course, come the Romans, who take over much of the Mediterranean and, of course, emulate lots of things from the ancient Greeks. Religion and culture, certainly, but also medicine. The Romans didn't advance the actual study of medicine or public health very much, but their contribution comes from advances in engineering and administration. Most famously, the Romans are known for their aqueducts and their water supply, but are actually given a bit too much credit on that front. While their aqueducts certainly put others to shame, they are by no means the first to make such structures. A number of Greek cities already had such systems in place by 200 BC. The sheer scale of the amount of water brought into Rome was incredible, though, with estimates I found starting at 40 million gallons of water a day and maxing out around 220 million gallons in a day. That is a lot of water for, at maximum, about a million Roman people, and also comparable with modern city water systems in terms of volume. Not only did the Romans move a lot of water, but they made sure it was pretty clean, too. There were basins designed to catch sediments in the water, and also grades of water, with some reserved for drinking use and other lower quality water reserved for watering gardens. As far as administration, entire jobs were created just to oversee aqueduct maintenance, and several hundred slaves were kept as permanent staff specifically for that purpose. To match the aqueducts bringing water in, there was also a huge drainage system, which is still part of the modern sewage system of Rome today. Despite these technological feats, though, these systems were not always available to everyday people in Rome, many of whom lived in much less hygienic circumstances. However, baths were publicly available and extremely cheap as the Roman Empire aged, with close to a thousand of them built at the peak. Entry for adults was normally about half a cent, and children were usually allowed to bathe for free. This cultural expectation of personal hygiene was no doubt beneficial to the health of the Romans, and I'm sure will be missed later on in this season. The Romans are, of course, also known for their massive government administration, which was used not only to maintain the incredible water supply, but also to provision health care more broadly. In the early days of the Roman Republic, medicine was mostly conducted by priests. Over time, though, Greek physicians began to migrate over and were often in high demand. Until the 2nd century AD, these doctors were beyond the reach of the poor, who still relied on folk medicine and religion for healing. In the 2nd century, though, a public medical service was created, Doctors were appointed to towns and institutions, with large cities having ten doctors, small cities, seven, and small towns, five. These doctors were paid by the state, primarily to take care of the poor, and were allowed to accept fees, but only from those who could afford them. They were also expected to take on students and to pass on their knowledge. Private doctors also existed, having their own private practices or being employed by wealthy families, baths, or even gladiatorial schools, which must have been a messy place to be a doctor. Finally, the Romans can also be credited with creating some of the earliest hospitals. In the 1st century AD, there are mentions of hospitals specifically for slaves, although eventually they expanded to serve everyone. In some provinces, public hospitals were created by the state, both for civilians, but also specifically for the military at strategic points. It may seem strange that hospitals had to be invented, but prior to this, large places dedicated to healthcare weren't really a thing, so the Romans can take credit for that too. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll talk about the advances made in public health during the Middle Ages, which sometimes weren't really advances. As per usual, thanks to Jojo Tang, my editor, Angie Lee, my cover artist, and Muse Open for our music. If you like what you hear, let me know with the links in the show notes, or leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.